Hello and welcome to Reclaiming My Theology, a podcast seeking to take our theology back from ideas and systems that oppress. I'm your host, Brandi Miller, and today I am joined by Marty Solomon to explore how we read the Bible in the context of purity culture. We talk about the ways that we can ask better questions about the Bible, debunk some of the questions that have been centered around purity culture, and explore some chunks of the Bible to find a more liberative way. I want to name as we have this conversation and as a note that we do talk in some binary terms as we talk about the text because we're staying fully in the language of the text and the conversation. So if you're like, damn, this feels narrow, that is intentional for the sake of clarity and integrity to the text. If you want to support Reclaiming My Theology, you already are by listening. Thank you. But you can also join us on Patreon at patreon.com slash reclaimingmytheology. You can also pick up digital or physical copies of our Lent devotional to get ready for this upcoming season that starts really, really soon, or grab a shirt from our Your Body Is Your Own series. You can also follow, rate, review. It only takes a minute or two and goes a long way to help others find the show. Finally, I just want to say thank you so much for allowing me to make this podcast and to put out this library of information into the world. It really is a gift to get to do it. And so with that, I hope you enjoy this conversation with Marty Saul. Alrighty, well, Marty, thank you so much for being on the show. I think you might be the second or third white guy to ever be on, so uh, good luck and congratulations. (laughs) I am honored to be on a short list, and it's a good thing that list is short, so wow. It really is. Turns out that's been a major part of how our work has been effective and helpful for people who really need it. (laughs) Good, good. We'll all try to honor that space well. Thank you. I appreciate that. Well, Marty, we are going to have some conversation today about biblical interpretation, questions that we ask, and all of that. But before we do that, I know a lot of my listeners, I know some of my listeners already listen to your work and are familiar with you, but for those who are not, I would love for you to describe for folks as a point of introduction, what does it mean to be you? Oh, what is it? What? I love that question. What does it mean to be me? Here I was bracing for the normal question, and then you tossed me that beautiful curveball. Um, it means I'm trying to figure out how to hold some of the stuff that I picked up when I was, I mean, I grew up in an evangelical fundamentalist space. And there are a few pieces that I really love, and so much I've had to unpack and deconstruct and pull apart and figuring out how to do that well and let go of stuff constantly pick up new things learn new things and and hopefully start to model that for others so that they can see somebody doing that in front of them and be free to do it themselves i mean that i love to live in that weird new space and it wasn't always home for me but it has been for some time and that's a lot of what it means to be me that's so lovely and so helpful because I think that especially as we're in whatever you whatever word you want to call it deconstruction decolonization just unlearning the journey is so oftenly so often framed as intuitive and you should be able to figure it out and it's this vast world where if we don't have folks who are walking it before us or don't have some on-ramps to that that it can feel deeply overwhelming and overstimulating so I appreciate that who you are and what it means to be you embody some of the gap that I think people really instinctively feel but don't necessarily have words to put to that yep i yeah i think that's been something that's been hard to get used to because i don't think the world that i typically occupy facilitates that space a whole lot or encourages that that sounds far too critical that my heart means it but it's a it's a reality of living in that so yeah I, i think that's it's been hard to get used to it but you can see the need in so many other people in the like they need it too. And so I think that's a part of us figuring out how to be, become more empathetic and compassionate people. 
Absolutely. And that's obviously in the social and political world that we're in so deeply needed. Yeah. Well, I would love to hear, too, a little bit about your sense of vocation in the world. What are the things that you kind of put your hands to or things that feel important, at least in this context, to share about how you spend your time? Oh, I'm a learner. I'm a teacher. So I love to read and learn. Uh, I have some daily rhythms and practices. I have some contemplative practices because I also have to create some pretty empty space to make sure I'm my therapist has taught me many times if I stop giving myself 20 minutes of empty meditation space, I become a mess. And so I have mm. some daily practices, I have, but I, some of those are just reading, learning, devouring stuff. I love to um, facilitate that learning experience for others. I'm a teacher by gift set. So we do the, we do the Bema podcast. Uh, we create all kinds of content. I don't know how long the podcast, I don't see the sun setting on the podcast world, but who knows? And I'm trying to make sure that we're always experimenting with content that's helpful and useful, um, especially with younger generation being a campus minister, working with Gen Z, generations that come after them. Uh, I mean, that's what it, that's what it looks like for, I, I love to learn, I love to create. Uh, I had a personal mission statement that said, I must be free to creatively inspire people with the truth. Um, mm. I, and that's just, and I have, I'm very privileged that I can occupy that space every day. I know not everybody gets to, um, I have a really good gig where I get to live in a space that I love and hopefully do it in a way that helps other people. So. Well, and what I will say for folks too, is that sometimes when we hear like helping lead people toward the truth or, or even be engaging with people in their pursuit of truth, many of us have approached that with uh, the expectation of certainty and not understanding the difference between truth and certainty and our engagement with those things. And so folks who, for folks who are listening, you just know that I have uh, listened to a lot of the podcast and understand your posture to be so exploratory as to be like really open and beautiful. And so for folks who might be bringing suspicion, uh, just know that I've done my due diligence to to sure. engage with your work and, the, and understand the pedagogy with and the ways yeah. in which you engage with those things. And I really do appreciate that. Yeah. I think that's a huge part of when I talk about truth is how we even posture ourselves. I mean, the biggest problem we've had in the last hundred years is we've postured ourselves with things like the Bible or our faith expressions. Like we've had to be certain of everything, always be prepared. The age of apologetics where we've been in the middle of this culture war with the rise of liberalism and textual criticism and the scopes trial. And like, we have postured ourselves with, we have to be so certain and it's destroyed the reputation of the church and culture. It's, to, it's destroyed our ability to engage the Bible because we no longer come to it with a sense of any, like it's trying to shape us and change us. So yeah, I think, I think truth is changing even our posture of what we think truth is and how we even approach that conversation in the first place. Absolutely. And as we enter into this conversation a little more deeply around purity and purity culture, I think that feels super relevant because oftentimes we're not actually having a, and I use this word carefully, but it's the only one I can think of right now, like a battle of ideas or morals. It really becomes a battle of methodology. It becomes about how we came to what we believe more than what we actually believe about it. And if people's methodology doesn't match what we believe is the appropriate way to engage with the text, there's a tendency, particularly those of us who grew up in conservative evangelical spaces, to throw out any kind of exploration or engagement because people's spaces don't actually, because people's spaces are considered like evil, immoral, or problematic. But I wanted to uh, 
have you on because you just wrote a book that has just recently come out that kind of tackles some of those things. So I'd love to ask you a little bit, about, if you could tell me just briefly about the book and why you decided to write it, because the stuff we'll talk about today has a lot to do with those pieces. Yeah, absolutely. So yeah, the book's called Asking Better Questions of the Bible. And I I, I did love that title when we came up with it, because it does encapsulate why we, why I felt like the book uh, is one of many voices that could enter the conversation, because we 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 come with a I feel like there are better questions we could be asking about the Bible because that could lead to better Bible readings. Bad Bible readings have done enough damage. Um, and I think a lot of that's driven by the questions we bring to the test, the, the text. I think we keep pulling the Bible to try to meet us on our own terms. And I think the conversation we'll have today is a perfect example of where we do that in such damaging ways, rather than meeting the text on its terms to let it answer a different set of questions than the ones that we might be insisting. We keep insisting the text answer these set of questions, but the text isn't answering those questions. And when we, I have a friend that says, when we ask questions the Bible's not asking, we always get the wrong answers. And um, so how do, we, how do we learn how to ask the right questions is a big part of, of getting, getting to a place where we have better readings of the Bible. That's so helpful, especially because as I've been, well, what happened basically for me and part of why I started doing this season on purity culture, apart from just is a necessary conversation for many of those who have been harmed by the church, is that I was doing campus ministry for about 10 years and in about years six or seven, some students came and they were like, hey, we want to be having sex. We want to be like, we want to like change the dynamics of our relationship. And they were like, can you tell me in the Bible, like why we shouldn't do that? Because like we can't find it. And I was like, Honestly, I can't find a good apologetic for you either. And I realized that some of the questions that I had been asking about the text weren't actually about the text as much as they were about how to use the text in order to create some sort of compliance with a religious norm rather than entering the text and asking what questions is the text actually asking about purity culture, about sex, about dating, about intimacy, about marriage, instead of saying, how can we use the text to reify the things that we already believe about it? So before we go into all of that, I'd love for you to just help us out a little bit in identifying some of the questions that we tend to bring or postures that we tend to bring to the Bible. And then we can jump into a little bit on yeah, some of the questions or things that the Bible is actually asking about those parts of our lives. Sure. Um, I once heard, I was I was reading a book that spoke of a rabbi that told the author, Christians read the Bible looking for truth, but the people of the Bible, referencing the Jewish people, read the Bible looking for meaning. And I think that is a huge difference in posture. Um I think another thing, especially when it comes to the, the topic of like, say, purity culture, sexuality, any of those things, we re because we're looking for truth, we go looking for moral codes, like a, a particular a static ethic, um, because then it supports our truth system, rather than realizing that what we have is a dynamic invitation to know not what to think, but how to think, um, and looking for meaning that allows me to then make those decisions. I mean, that's what the Bible really is, which is what's fascinating to look at, you know, the Jewish tradition and what they've been able to do, you know, 2000 years ago, some of the conversations they navigated because they had a different relationship with law and legal code than we presume when we come to the, when we come to the scriptures. So I think those are a couple examples of what we bring to the text often as Westerners. 
Well, and the damage that that does is so clear because many of us become so attached to the systems and authorities that raise us because we are looking for a type of moralism that gives us certainty, that gives us comfort, that gives us some level of belief that the view that the Western world often creates of God as like consistently wanting to punish rather than forgive or be with or to distance oneself. Like I think about how I grew up with the bridge diagram where, you know, it's like you know, on one side for listeners who don't know, on one side you have like you and then there's this giant chasm and on the other side is God. And it doesn't matter how hard you try, you can't jump across the chasm, but Jesus dies to give you a bridge so you can get across to God. And I think that that kind of ideology shapes really deeply, even if we don't say it exactly that way, how we approach the Bible as an on-ramp to getting God's love or avoiding God's punishment. And so then when we start to talk about sex, dating, and intimacy, there are already so many barriers to people in a culture of shame that then infiltrate how we view our relationship with the divine, not just as individuals, but as collectives. And in a culture that already has such a challenge thinking collectively, that idea of seeking meaning is complicated because we would rather create compliance that allows us to know for sure that our community is doing the right thing, which I think is why a lot of churches have ended up where they've ended up. Yes. Yeah, absolutely. And I love you bring up the bridge diagram, because if the goal is to cross the bridge and these and there's the static moral code, then as I'm wrestling with whether or not I'm breaking a moral code or not, what I'm actually doing is if I am, all these things are barriers getting in the way of me ever being able to cross the bridge or obliterating the bridge in its entirety, or, and it just changes the relationship between how I'm even having any of these conversations, because that's the end. I mean, that's the end game. That's the goal and the objective of every conversation that we have in the text. Absolutely. And I do believe it's an apt metaphor because like when I think about that bridge diagram, there's like one narrow way to get across. And if you like mess up, you're going to go into the chasm where you've been trying to avoid all along. So everything about your life has to be constantly policed and therefore never explored in a way that actually allows you to develop meaning for yourself and for the communities that you're a part of. And so I love that concept of trying to help people engage with meaning rather than really anything else, because that I don't know. It just feels more like it's something that I see in the scriptures from beginning to end. Yep. Certainly fits the life and the example of how Jesus interacts with people. It would explain why he's able. If Jesus sees these things as moral codes, his behavior is really weird um, and illogical. But if he sees these things as a dynamic way of teaching me how to see humanity and engage with other human beings, well, then his behavior is spot on. It makes complete sense. Absolutely. So I do want to talk specifically about purity culture, intimacy, romance, and all of that. And I want to have that conversation specifically because when I was growing up, the text that was centered was the Genesis, the Genesis creation narrative, which became a text that instead of being about creator creating this community of creation to be together and to reflect the image of God together for the flourishing of all things, it became primarily a text that we used to talk about marriage, to talk about sex, and to create some kind of weird mythological ethic about why we should engage with that. And so the so the primary question that really guided a lot of the purity culture stuff from the beginning is, what is marriage and what's God's desire for marriage? And if we extrapolate that into everything else, that's the thing that shaped our questions. And so I'm wondering if you can talk a little bit about some of the questions that you see us centering as we have these conversations about purity culture. Yeah, it's a great example of where some of these principles show up. I think we get the cart before the horse and we switch the order of things in that story. What we have here is we have these 
ancient creation myths that are and I don't mean myths and whatever. I'm sure that's not going to bother your audience as my as much as my typical all. audience is bothered by that. But you have these creation, you have origin stories. It's grappling with the origins of of humanity and where and, the, and it's talking big ideas. It's not talking about institutions of marriage or any of those things. So what we end up having is a conversation about male and female, like. And not in, and see, it's even hard to have that conversation today because of how we force these things into gender categories and all those in the midst of a cult of, of a larger conversation that we're, we're trying to navigate and have. But in a mm-hmm. world that basically it, it said in a world where it was a male gender and the female gender is property, where there's male gender. And this story comes along and says, no, 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 no. We took humanity and we split it apart so that it is incomplete. And now these two, um, the now you have these male and female has a relationship. I mean, it's just such a, a crazy idea in this ancient world that male and female only together. I can remember being a staff meeting at a church and they were talking about doing gender-based small groups. And I just like blew my top because I was like, I have to have diversity in my small group because if I don't, I don't have all of humanity in my small group. And it has nothing to do with me being married or not married or single or anything else. It has to do with the diversity of that person is not like me and they carry a piece of the image of God that I don't carry. And only together are we truly the image of God. In in a marriage relationship, in any relationship, only shared humanity together. So only when we are all present and that's what Genesis is trying to describe. That will lead to a conversation about why marriage finds its way. Like, why is marriage so powerful? Why is it a constructive relationship? Because it's the embodiment of a much larger truth, which is that humanity is made up of male and female. It's not just made up of male with some females that kind of get to, I guess, fit in there later. It's made up of male and female together, and only that union makes us what we truly are as as humans. And all of that is completely separate from a conversation about marriage itself, which is what the author of Genesis does. You have this parenthetical statement about this is why a man leaves his – because the conversation isn't about marriage. The conversation is about something much bigger, but this is what we see in marriage is what the author is trying to tell us when they make this parenthetical aside about man and woman leaving a man leaving his father and mother and, and clinging to his wife. I, so anyway, I think it's a wonderful example of of where we we inject our assumptions, we take a passage to fit into our prescribed codes, and then we use it. Well, and what I appreciate about that, and even our previous kind of conversation about meaning, is that as we engage with meaning, we can extrapolate principles. And I think that's what I never learned in my spiritual upbringing. And as a person who's like working with a church, who's going through a process of becoming affirming and things like that, that's been a lot of our conversation. It's been, how do we extrapolate the text, the principles of the text around the need for people to be in the room and to be accepted and to be loved by God and to be known as a Mago day. Like a lot of those things have been so present in those conversations. And I, and I think I wonder even beyond sex, sexuality, and dating, the ways that we understand those principles to be so informative to other parts of how we do church and how we do community and how we do life. But as we kind of shift into that, you said specifically that phrase shared humanity. 
And I think that's super important in this conversation about purity culture, because the main questions that we tend to ask in purity culture conversations are about compliance and therefore about objectification and dehumanization. And so I think I've often heard the question, even if not said exactly, how do we protect young men from whatever, which always means how do we protect young men from women and that creates this objectifying posture. And so I'm wondering if there's other examples that you can think of, of questions or or texts that have been centered with poor questions that have shaped this conversation. Yeah, I think I think one of the other ones that immediately comes to mind is the conversation about divorce, which is going to go back to the passage we were just talking about in Genesis. Like we we have this ethic and we use this proof text where Jesus obviously says how bad and evil divorce is. But that's not the conversation that Jesus is having. Jesus is having a conversation very similar to what you just referenced. The Pharisees approach him and they say, when can we send our wives away? In other words, they're just pro they're not equals. They're just things we can get rid of, like a possession. Like we can, and, and, and Jesus is like, you can't do that. You can't. And then they're like, well, then why did Moses even give us a, a divorce certificate? And Jesus goes back and quotes Genesis, not as a treatise for why divorce is so unethical, but why their question was wrong in the first place. Because the woman is a shared partner in humanity, so you don't get to make this, you don't just get to send her away. She is a part of a union, and, and this is why if you do, and then she remarries, you, he says, cause her to sin. Because we're not valuing, it's that same shared humanity. It's another example where we just center one particular group of people. Everything else finds an orbit around that person, around that category. And now they find their meaning poorly in orbit around somebody else rather than us realizing there is no center of gravity we're all in orbit around the Father and this beautiful family of God. We're all just kids, all of us, mm. shared shared humanity. And I think that's another example that comes to mind. Well, yeah, and it makes me think about the radically problematic ways that we interpret Pauline texts and how, even as oh, I think about like the yes. Paul apologetic in Romans, how he's talking really about that concept of shared humanity. He's doing this whole thing on like, how are you together yep. and what does it mean to be together but instead because we make that into this uh prescriptive expression of how god saves and about sin not about community we end up missing all of the complex things that are happening and with that framework in mind i remember learning first corinthians 6 where paul's talking about how your body is a temple of the holy spirit and so because it's like well romans means that god's just like not punishing you because god is so great and you're so decrepit and so terrible even though that's not what paul's trying to communicate and then you get to first corinthians where paul is talking about how people's spe a specific community's ethics around how they are together matter and then he uses this language of the temple and instead of my community asking well, what, what is the temple? What is the God trying to do in the temple? And therefore, what is Paul trying to talk about with the temple? We're like, well, don't be, don't unite your body with a prostitute and therefore don't have sex and therefore something, something, fornication back in Matthew 6. And we just make these really bad connections because we're asking really bad questions. Absolutely. Uh, yep. It's yet another example, which is why we will then completely misread the passages 
because it's Corinthians or Timothy where some of these really problematic mm -hmm. passages about women or something show up. And we, we end up misreading all of those because we don't understand the larger ethic that Paul's couching that conversation in. He's having this conversation of what does it mean to be a gospel-centered community in Corinth? And he's saying, well, if it were me, I would live this way because this is what the gospel look. This is the story you have to tell in Corinth. But yet it's not the same application he has in Rome because he does something totally different in Rome because living out the gospel in Rome is almost the opposite. It's the same gospel. It's the same mission. And it's the same, but it's a completely different application. And so absolutely. And, and, and those are two letters where we struggle the most. And yet it's maybe one of the most beautiful places to try to pull apart some of those conversations, 100%. Yeah, which has been my experience too. I think I was pretty traumatized by a use of Romans because I was taught the Romans road yep. and how to use this as a tool to make people afraid of both God and the Christian community and what it could do to you if you fell out of compliance. Uh -huh. And I, I think even growing up, I had a lot of cognitive disconnect because I'd read these stories of John 8 and Jesus interacting with this woman. <laughs> the, even, the, even the framing that I have of it is like, the woman caught in the act of adultery. And I'm like, no, the people... The adulterous people for whom a patriarchal system pulls one of into a public space of shame, like even that yep. framing is so different than, well, how is Jesus just forgiving sin? But if I have Romans in mind, as Jesus's primary objective is to deal with sin in this particular way that looks Western, then I'm going to read those texts, not as a picture of what God has always been doing in the text and it's re complex references back to the Hebrew scriptures, but instead I will read it as, well, we should just be forgiving instead of looking at the systemic issues that are being tackled really, really clearly in the text. Yes, uh, absolutely. And to realize that Jesus is engaging in an unbelievably complex legal, like a, a Jewish legal conversation about how are you going to engage the law here? And he very clearly can see from the get-go what the injustice is. And yet they're wanting to force this into that legal code. Okay, go ahead and get out of the injustice here when the, when the, um, when the trespass is so clear and he's able to go, oh, I will. I will use every bit of the law to address the injustice and not let this bastardization of the trespass screw up what justice looks like because you are absolutely exploiting somebody for the purpose of a much bigger religious conversation. And I'm going to play by your own rules and show you why what you're doing is so wrong. And even in their world, they end up dropping their stones and walking away because they're like, well, yep. So, I mean, it's just such a, a brilliant, beautiful engagement and again, I love the part where he plays by their rules. I'll use your legal code. I will I will address your prophets. I will, and, and he ends up having the conversation in such a way where it, it's just so clear that it's over. One, it's so sad that we miss that when we're just, when we're framing ourselves or when we're kind of pinning ourselves or backing, when we're backing ourselves into a corner of only letting the text try to mean one thing or reveal one thing or show one thing. Because I love like in that story that we can say, hey, when we are seeing an institution creating or expressing oppression toward marginalized people, 
how can we use the tools of the system in some way that actually reveals its inherent flaws? And I'm like, that's a way more interesting question to me than do we judge people or do we not judge people? Because that's not what the text is trying to ask in the first place. And when we have these conversations, particularly about sex, our primary question maybe is, what am I supposed to judge and therefore avoid? And what is the only other way to engage with those things? And I think what that's our question, like, what do I avoid? We never actually encounter the good things that are present in what we're trying to engage with. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. I, I completely agree. Yep. Yeah, I, I've also been thinking a little bit of, because <laughs> I, I get, I'm going back to my own experience of being told so fervently. And, and here's the thing. I'm never asking anyone who's on here to be like, tell me your specific ethics or morals or vocation or whatever around any of this stuff. Yep. I think I'm just really curious about how I grew up because when I was growing up, they people yeah. were just like, don't have sex before you're married because it's bad and like Jesus, is, it's going to ruin your life and then you won't have a great marriage and you want to have a great marriage, right? And most people are like, well, I don't even know what that would mean. And most of us didn't grow up around people yep. who had great marriages, so it didn't matter anyway. And so we're being told something that we're being told is truth that could somehow send us to some idea of hell. And then even the act of asking questions about that becomes deeply vulnerable and frames almost any kind of questioning or engagement as sinful in and of itself or not wanting to submit to the truth or to be a part of the gospel. And I'm realizing that for a lot of listeners, there are so many ways that we've been scared out of asking questions about critical texts. And so I'm wondering if kind of in our remaining time, we can go through a few critical texts, ones either that I can give or that if, that you think of, and just kind of model how to ask different questions about those, knowing that I think a lot of us are just in a total deficit of skills and tools to start to re-engage with the text and therefore just don't engage with it at all anymore in our deconstructing processes. Yeah, absolutely. Can I start? I would love if you did. <laughs> so uh, I love to go to Levitical code because we we think of the we think of the book of Leviticus and we think well that's the most static that's literally a moral <laughs> code that is exactly what Leviticus is I mean uh, that's as straightforward as as we get and yet to realize that the Jewish world of Leviticus so the Jews who wrote Leviticus who read Leviticus, whose lives are governed by Leviticus, do not see it that way. They've always seen the legal conversation as one teaching them not what to think, but how to think. So if I can, even just as a thought exercise, maybe I'm not even sold on that yet, but even as a thought exercise, if that's true, let me go back to Leviticus and read a chapter on sexual ethics in Leviticus 18. What is Leviticus 18 trying to teach me? What's the better question here? Rather than a checkbox of moral and immoral activities and behaviors, what is the text trying to teach me through all of these behaviors? And it keeps talking about shame. It keeps talking about how when you do this, you shame somebody else. When you do this, you shame somebody else. When you do this, you... so the the legal code apparently isn't about an abstract moral legal code. It's about the impact that these behaviors have on other people. Well, that helps me know how to think. My sexuality has an impact on people. That's what drives a morality. That's what drives an ethic, is the impact that, ha again, now we're back to what? We're, about, we're back to recognizing shared humanity. We're not just talking about religious behaviors or breaking a particular rule, but we're now framing a conversation and I'm a human being, there are other human beings, and the way that I relate to them either disrupts shalom, 
it makes something straight. It takes something that's that's that zedek straight and makes it crooked. It disrupts it. It breaks it apart, or it puts it back together. It restores it. So, what are these behaviors doing to those relationships? I mean, and that's 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 Leviticus, but that's sitting right in front of us when every single one of those laws is: don't do this because you shame your father, don't do this because you shame your sister, don't do this because all of these laws have a ramification of what it does to somebody else. It disrupts their agency. It disrupts their humanity. It disrupts their... Well, well, now we have a much different conversation about Leviticus than just a list of all these things that are not allowed. So that's that's one passage where I want to ask better questions as I read it. Well, and that's really important to me, even as listeners are hearing, because if we are having a conversation that is about shame and how we interact with other people, a lot of the conversation we're actually having when we're talking about sex and sexual purity or whatever we want to call it is responsibility. And so much of the conversation that I had around purity culture was around why men weren't accountable or responsible for their own actions and therefore how they shamed other people. And so if we're asking the question, how am I shaming? Then we can actually go back and let the Bible speak to our lives now by saying, what would cause shame in my culture in 2023, not asking the text and the people in the text to speak to a culture it's not trying to speak to, nor ever really thought it was going to speak to. And so I can ask questions about in my context, what is what is going to cause shame? What is going to cause harm? What is going to cause brokenness between my own humanity and someone else's? And if I ask those questions, I actually come to a place of understanding the principle of the text, which is responsibility and engagement and deep thoughtfulness about the other. And so it makes me think about all of the ways that I wasn't taught any kind of thoughtfulness because because thoughtfulness actually kills objectivity and the binaries that we use, which is this is good and this is bad. Instead of saying, how is my life intersecting with another person's in this way, causing harm or causing excitement or causing goodness or objectification or whatever, we could apply any kind of form to that. But it does feel like it helps us to principle the conversation rather than to just go like, well, I didn't meet shellfish, you know, like in later parts of the day, you know, it just feels like. And if we miss, I feel feel like especially with Leviticus, if we misinterpret one part of the text, we will misinterpret the entirety of the text. And so and then have to do all kinds of mental gymnastics that are unhelpful and really not very fun to explain our behaviors when really what we're trying to cover up is our own desire to control people in our communities or our own homophobia or or whatever, instead of saying, maybe this text is trying to do something different. Absolutely. And like, like you say, um, you, you pointed out, you know, who's being held accountable in the systems that we grew up in, who's not being held accountable. How are these things being weaponized and used? And yet Leviticus, all of this accountability, all of this direction and discussion about morality is being directed at, the the patriarchal leaders of these homes. Leviticus isn't being written to the 14-year-old girls. Leviticus is being written to the men who lead these households. They're being instructed to guard and honor the humanity of their entire social order. And yet what we do is those same people, usually, usually white men, because that's who's always leading in these spaces, take these and then they fling them out rather than shouldering that accountability themselves as something they're supposed to honor and steward, we then take them and project them onto everybody but us. And that's what becomes, again, so harmful 
but we we take the parts of Leviticus we like, we direct them where we want to, rather than asking better questions, reading it in context, putting it on the right shoulders, making sure those shoulders fill that weight and accountability, because that's where it ultimately lies, not on everybody else, but on them to lead that well in their context. So those, yeah, it just keeps going. And if that was the posture we had, where leaders in these communities shoulder accountability for their own actions, we wouldn't need the current culture that we have of non-disclosure agreements and circling the wagons around these problematic pastors and big article exposés on men who have abused their power over and over again because they fundamentally missed the principles of the text. And it becomes incredibly ironic to me because these people are saying, here are the rigid ways in which you should live and that you can live. And it reminds me of when Jesus is talking to uh, the Pharisees in Luke, maybe 12, where he's saying like, you you lay burdens on people that are too heavy to bear without bearing them yourselves. And so just Jesus is presenting a principle that is being played out in real time in these conversations, specifically about sex and sexuality, where the rigidness of how we think about it never allows us to do the character formation necessary to not do what ends up being really immoral, problematic, and power abusing things. And so I often am concerned about the ways that leaders do the very thing that you're describing. Yep. Yep. Absolutely. Well, can we talk a little bit about some of the Jesus teaching texts? Because when I think about the ones, like I, again, in that conversation where someone was like, we want to have sex. And everyone was like, well, don't because it's bad. And they're like, why? The only thing that a leader that was really trying to beat up on these people said was they were like, well, Jesus uses the word fornication in Matthew. And they extrapolate that. And they're like, well, that is that just means that you can't do anything outside of sex and any kind of exploration is problematic because that's what Jesus is saying. And I just kind of looked at them and went, like, if you're trying to make that argument, I think there's a lot of other ways you could make that argument rather than taking one word that you don't know and that they don't know to create mystery enough to cause confusion enough to make them afraid and therefore comply. So can you talk to me a little bit about Jesus's use of fornication as he's teaching on the Sermon on the Mount? Yeah, and I'm going to be maybe a poor person to ask because I have major questions about the Greek manuscript of Matthew. I think Matthew Fair was enough. written in Hebrew. I think church history tells us it was written in Hebrew, and I don't know how I feel about it's not that I question the inspirit. I'm not trying to call into question I'm not going to build a treatise off of a Greek word in Matthew is what I'm trying to say. That is a very, very uh, exactly. tricky <laughs> position to take. I want something to be validated across the synoptic gospels. And that might be the case. Now, here's the better, here's the better point maybe is not what the Greek word means in a vacuum, but the fact that Jesus is probably referencing Old Testament Tanakh when he makes that okay yes and i'm with you and for yes absolutely and that i could go there but now we're back to the conversation we just had what is leviticus saying when it talks about fornication what is torah trying to get out what is jesus referencing is it a moral code a sexuality ethic or is jesus saying when you and what's the larger teaching of the sermon on the mount and what's the most consistent like jesus keeps talking about how we treat people and how we take care of people and he's talking about oaths and ador- and adultery and divorce and all of these things are about our internal heart motivations and how we treat people so i wonder what jesus's motivation is by talking about torah and fornication it's probably now not just some random sexual ethic conversation. It's probably still a conversation about how we treat value and honor 
other people. So I, I think those are, um, yeah, I, it's, it's such a, and see for me, I think at one point you said earlier in this conversation, I find this reframing so much more compelling or inspired. You said something along those lines. And I love that because there are far more compelling ways to have these conversations that are centered around people's humanity. Like there's no such thing as the Bible doesn't talk about premarital sex because there's no such thing in the world of the Bible. It doesn't exist. Sex is one of four things. It's either, um, I want to stay away from trigger words. It's either, it's either violence, it's, it's adultery, it's prostitution, or it's marriage. There's no other category. There's no such thing in their, their, con their construct. If you sleep with somebody and it's not one of the other three categories, you just entered into a covenantal financial and economic relationship with them. So there is no, so the fact, I, I want to have that conversation about, not that there's a, a, an ethic that you're breaking if you have premarital sex, but how do we see relationships and how do we value relationships? And why did the biblical world say, if you did that, you're now financially responsible for this relationship? There's an economic reality. Like, because now all of a sudden I'm framing the value of another human being rather than an abstract ethic that I'm breaking. And I find that conversation far more compelling than a conversation about a rule, an, an arbitrary rule that exists in God's cosmos um because he didn't give these rules arbitrarily he gave these rules because they tear apart lives because they treat people as commodities to be exploited and that's that that's a conversation i would much rather have about desires and indulgence and how that impacts relationships than premarital sex is breaking a moral code it's pretty hard to make that biblical case appropriately <laughs> It absolutely would be. And it's why a lot of us are like, well, what the hell? There's like no, there's not even, there's not enough evidence to make this claim that's been fundamentally impressed on many of us as like the very worst thing that we could believe or do. And I think I've heard very often, I'm sure a lot of my listeners have heard this as people start to ask those questions about the Bible, like, well, you're just trying to justify your own behavior. And I'm like, okay, that is one really, a really bad faith argument and a really bad faith way to engage with other humans who are asking questions about things that have been harmful and problematic to them, not just in behavior modification, but in actually learning anything about themselves. Like I think about how the questions that you're asking allow us to ask the question, well, what is sex? Like if it's not one of the four yep. things that the Bible is talking about, yep. then what is sex and how do we open that conversation to not just be, because I remember in like my youth group, people would split hairs and be like, well, oral sex isn't really sex. And like maybe anal sex isn't really yep. sex. Because, and I'm like, okay, yep. well then like, you're saying that queer folks can't have sex. So like, what do we do with that? And like, what do we do with those questions yep. and the dehumanization of queer folks when we're centering the sex and sexuality of straight people? Like, how do we answer the question, what is sex and what is it for? And what does it do when the only question I'm really asking is, do I do it or do I not? And so I love that when we ask better questions, we expand the conversation from what should I or should I not do to who am I becoming and how do I engage with both myself, others, and creator around the intricacies of my own life and my complex identities and who I am and how I'm experienced in the world, because that is a much more fruitful, engaging conversation that I think that many churches will not allow many of us to have because they're so afraid of what might happen if people, and this is going to sound like conspiracy theorists and it's not, like if we think sure. for ourselves, if we start to explore for ourselves the very things that Jesus invites his disciples to explore when he says to come follow him. He's not saying, hey, just comply. He's saying, hey, come watch what I do and 
figure out what that means in the life that you live and for people who are fishers now becoming fishers of men like how do you contextualize what Jesus is saying and what he's doing to the lives that we're actually living not the lives we hypothetically should live by applying a text out of context to 2023 a, a thousand times yes and and that's actually where the accountability would appropriately be placed is all of us learning how to think discussing these things as a community because as you pointed out earlier that's where the holy spirit lives it doesn't live in you and in me it lives in us together mm -hmm. and so i was having a, a recent interview uh, where we were discussing the need for accountability. And I think these these institutional hierarchies, this person was saying, are where we hold people accountable. Like somebody has to hold them accountable to make sure that they're reading the Bible. And I'm like, well, actually, the, be the most accountable way would to have everybody involved with that because that's where the Holy Spirit lives, not have one person at the top of a power pyramid mm -hmm. decide what is correct or not correct. But if the Holy... We either trust that the Holy Spirit truly lives in us as his temple, as her temple, or we don't. Like, we don't believe that's real. And so what do we really trust is able to hold us accountable? My decision, my biblical training, my convictions, or our convictions, our life lived together, our wrestling, our wrestling with a, with a, with a, with a, how does this impact people ethic? Uh, well, now all of a sudden we're, we're, we're all being held accountable to each other. Um, but anytime I let one person or one institution or one system make that decision for me, accountability is going to get a little tricky. I think that a lack of accountability, I think that a lack of accountability is why we've gotten as far as we have in this conversation and why it's become yes. so pro so problematic for so many of us. And I've been talking to one of my Jewish friends recently about uh, interpretation and just engaging with she was like, yeah, yeah, we we don't engage with, like, to to study Torah, you you need ten people, like you need voices yep. in the room. And she's like, and even if I don't have ten, I have you. And like, we are conversation partners, and it is in conversation and engagement with one another, and an exploration and, and question asking, and in struggling and wrestling and arguing that we start to figure out ethics and meaning that will serve us all as a community because we've formed those as a community. And it's part of why I have such an issue with uh, the critical historical method of biblical interpretation, because it's mostly being done by, frankly, white men in rooms by themselves whose interests are more ideological than they are practical. And then the people who grab a hold of those ideas that often the historical critical method gives us then interpret those interpretations as gospel. And so I think there's all kinds of work around accountability that we need to do in in order to actually even free ourselves to ask the questions that you're saying that we could be asking. I find that super beautiful and can validate that in my own experience because I'm one of I'm one of those that has been informed by other people that look and act just like me. And as I've been working harder and harder to make sure that my circle has other voices in it, to make sure my books that I'm reading every year are from a more diverse crowd. I'm realizing there's something really beautiful that I've learned from the scripture, but something I have been missing in its application because I haven't been surrounded by the others, all these other voices going, oh, wait a minute, I'll tell you how that applies itself. And I go, oh goodness, which is uncomfortable for me because I would prefer to control the ideology, mm -hmm. but I, I can absolutely validate that that is true and it only becomes more beautiful when that's done in a different space than the one that I'm used to. I, I have to grapple with applications that I 
simply wasn't thinking of because those weren't my spaces that I occupy. One, I think that for many people who listen, uh, we've we've maybe missed the idea, we've maybe misinterpreted the idea that understanding requires application um, because what we've seen is that. We've seen that when we understand yep. the text in a certain way, we will apply yep. it even without intention. And so yeah. a lot of us have to backtrack a little bit and practice understanding that requires application that isn't just what we've been given or what we've heard previously. And I think that's a pretty vulnerable place to be. And so I'm wondering, even as we start to wrap up, are there some tools that you would offer people? Because I, I hear you, you know, like, even as we're describing Leviticus, you're like, well, here's all the layers. And I think a normal person might be like, well, what the hell am I supposed to do with that? Like, I don't have time to get into <laughs> all of the intricacies or yeah. the engagement, but I might want to develop a relationship with the text and therefore a relationship with others and creator in a different way. Do you have some tools that you would give folks who are relearning a relationship with the Bible after maybe only understanding it as a weapon used against their humanity? Yeah, um, this is, I'm going to try to frame this answer because it's going to come off as kind of, it's going to sound weird because there's other ways, there are other ways to get so part of my part of my heart behind the book or the podcast is that it serves as a vehicle to get this stuff to folks in their right context. When we're studying Leviticus, there's show notes and connections. When we are at the end of every chapter in the book, there's a list of resources to start your own journey and dig deeper or go further or those kind of things. That can be done in a lot of different ways, but that's part of the reason why I started some of those spaces was to answer that question in better ways. Like, how can we, because mm -hmm. I'm not the expert. I don't have enough letters after my name. I'm a nobody, but I can help point people towards the experts that have been helpful for me. And so if we can do that, like we have a reference, uh, a referenced resources page on our website of all the things we've recommended in the show notes. And it's like four and a half pages long and it's beautiful. It makes me chuckle mm -hmm. every time I log onto it um, because that's, and it all depends on what, I mean, this whole thing is such a wide, beautiful, deep conversation. Am I in Leviticus? Am I in Joshua? Am I in Amos? Like what part of the conversation am I dealing with? So the book's designed to get us started on some really basic levels. The podcast maybe even allows us to go a little bit deeper. But as soon as you find an off-ramp that works for you, like the podcast is not all that. If it works for you, beautiful. If it doesn't, like it's not the only vehicle to get this stuff to you. But if it can get us started and open up a door or crack a window, then those are some of the. Uh, but I've I continue to find my greatest learning by just showing up in spaces where I don't necessarily belong and learning from them. I mean, I showed up in Aleph Beta. It's an Orthodox Jewish learning space. It's not even it's not Messianic. They don't follow Jesus. Ended up shaping my life more than almost any other space I'd ever been in. And it's not even a space that I belonged in. But to learn from other people has been unbelievably valuable. And to continue to do that as I continue to wake up to new things in my own life and blind spots and prejudice and everything else that I have baked into who I am, to continue to walk into spaces where I'm not comfortable or I don't belong here. But man, has it been helpful to learn from those spaces has been has been good. That's so good. And I love that in that the text is not a static thing that we have to probe and just make do something, but it's something that we that serves our development by helping us to share humanity, as we use that phrase throughout this conversation. Yep. 
And I think for many folks, maybe the thing is just to start somewhere. I think when we look at the whole text all at once, oh, it yes. gets really overwhelming. And so yep. for me, it's been really helpful just to start somewhere, to pick a text, maybe one that you've heard a million times, and to ask a couple of questions to start yourself off. Like, what have I been taught this text is about? Yep. Who does this interpretation benefit? Yep. And what questions or discomforts do I have at the intersection of those two things? Yep. Like when, one example I can use is when I look at the story of David and Goliath. We frame it as a story of a man after God's own heart whose faith slays a giant. Therefore, the application is you can slay every giant in your life. Well, when I start to ask like who that benefits in Western society, it's men who get to feel like they get to be heroic and God honors extreme action taken for the sake of protecting God's people. And I'm like, okay, it's not everyone's interpretation, but it is an interpretation that I've seen used in practice a bunch of times. Where I start to ask the question is, well, why did David have to do that in the first place? And then I understand the story of David and Goliath is really a story about Saul and his fundamental leadership failures as a king that has him hiding in a tent somewhere while his people are afraid and being taunted 80 times day and night. And so if I start to ask the question, that question, I might be able to go, well, what is this story teaching me about leadership and my own tendency to abdicate leadership to someone else who then has to step in and do what I was called to do? And so I think if we start anywhere, somewhere familiar, and we ask that question, who does this text, who does the interpretation I've been given of this text benefit? And what have I been taught this means in the past? And what discomforts and questions do I have based on those two things? I think it can help us to fall in love with the text by letting it be a conversation partner for us rather than a book of rules that we follow in order to appease a God who doesn't seem to be that interested in being appeased in the first place. Yep. Yeah. You said familiar. And if it truly is like we're starting, uh, make sure it's also a safe space. Like, scripture has just been so traumatic for so many of us like don't go like find the hardest stuff that you've wrestled with and try <laughs> to start there like start with the places where it's like okay this is this is a safe part of scripture that i found to be and and get used to that there like ride with some training wheels and then start mm -hmm. heading off into these other different places again with increasing level of challenge or danger but but start in a place where it's like i can trust this um, and I'm going to, I'm going to learn how to speak the language of the Bible and I'm just going to get started and you don't have to get the whole thing finished by the time you die. Like the little bits and pieces that God gives you are, are powerful pieces. They will be enough. So yes. the words of God no, never return void. They always accomplish his purpose and the desire for which he sent it. And that doesn't have to be all 66 books. That can be the parts that are most helpful to you that you put inside of you that bear fruit. That's such a beautiful invitation for folks, because I think that many of us were taught, especially if we were part of like certain churches or campus ministries, that you just have to like memorize as much scripture as you possibly can. And somehow that will mean that uh -huh. it changes your life, which uh -huh. I have not found to be true. I've just found it to make people kind of arrogant and stressful to be around. Uh -huh. And so I love that invitation to let what God gives you be enough to understand God's self as God would want to be understood by you and known by you wherever you're at, because I think there's a lot of freedom in that. And there's so much, and that's part of what I love about the Jewish tradition is there's so much freedom and in interpretation, so much space to be wrong, so much space to find life yes. just in the process, not necessarily in the outcomes. And so I love the invitation to really what you're describing is to becoming, to yep. taking the stress out of the text 
and to explore yeah. and to let God meet you, however God and wherever God wants to meet you in a much better thing than just like a spiritual or theological exercise, because that has done very little good for so many of us. Yep. Absolutely. Yep. I'll say a hearty amen to that. Well, I appreciate so much your time and your thoughtfulness and really this resource that you're putting out in the form of the book and the podcast. Is there anything else that you'd like to plug or like, where can people find your book? Yeah. Where can they buy that? What would be a good place to get connected with you and the work you're doing? Yeah, they can go to martysolomon.com and find everything they need. They can find the podcast, they can find my YouTube channel, they can find the book, they can find my tour schedule, they can find other interviews I've done. Um, so anything they can find, social media handles, all that stuff can be found at martysolomon.com. So, yep. Excellent. I will put that in the show notes. And friends, we'll be coming up with some more resources on how to enter some of these conversations if you're still kind of spooked by it and some places within Reclaiming My Theology to start to reshape your relationship with the Bible, because I think it's a worthy, fun, engaging, and delightful endeavor, really. And I think that's what the scriptures should give us is a sense of delight and sense of, again, the shared goodness among us that is given by Creator for the sake of Creator. So I just want to give that invitation. And thank you so much for your time today. I really appreciate it. Thank you for making time. It was a really, a really fun and refreshing conversation today. Thank you for joining for another episode of Reclaiming My Theology. Again, you can support us by subscribing, rating, reviewing, getting merch, and all of that stuff, but really just by telling your friends about the show and continuing to be on this journey with us. As always, if you have questions or feedback or want to get involved in the podcast somehow or the community that we're building, feel free to email us at reclaimingmytheology at gmail.com. Y'all, we're uh, chipping away at purity culture, but we got a long way to go. And so in the meantime, as usual, let's keep trying just to do a little bit better together. This time in Bible interpretation, so that's kind of fun. See y'all next time.